Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you this morning, I hope you do. I encourage you to open it to 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5. As you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome all of those who are joining us via our live stream. We're grateful that you are joining with us this morning. Also, Reach Church DeSoto and the venue service right down the hall. We're grateful for all of you as we gather around God's Word this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to look at the whole chapter. You remember that Hannah declared in her song that God is in charge. God is sovereign. God is a God who raises up. He's a God who puts down. And he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we've already seen this demonstrated in Penina, who is arrogant. She's having children left and right. She's viewed as victorious. And then there's Hannah, and Hannah's barren. She's humble, but she loves God. And at the end of that chapter, Penina is silenced, and Hannah is exalted in her faithfulness and given a child. We've seen it in Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and their arrogance and their pride. They've been disobedient to God in their role. They're abusing God's people and in defiance of his law and his word, they're despising the sacrifices. And then there's Samuel, just a little boy, just a servant in the temple. What do we see? Eli and his two sons, they are brought low. Hophni and Phinehas are killed in battle. Eli, in news that the ark of God has been taken, he falls over dead. And little Samuel, at the end of the chapter, what? He is confirmed as the prophet of God. Now when we get to chapter five, we're gonna see this again, that the Philistines are gonna be viewed as victorious, victorious over Israel, and to some extent in their eyes, seen as victorious over God. That whenever your army beat another army in that day, your God was viewed as greater than their God. So we're victorious. Israel is humbled. But what will we see in the next few chapters? The Philistines will be brought low. In fact, at the end of this chapter, they're going to be crying out for mercy. And God's going to take the nation of Israel. He'll come back to them and raise them up. But really at the heart of this, let me tell you, the heart of this chapter, it's not Israel versus the Philistines. It's God versus Dagon. And God's going to whip him like a borrowed mule. In fact, as I was reading this, I, I, I couldn't help but think of in my daily reading. I've read, uh, been reading in the Psalms, and Psalm 115 says this. It says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but they cannot see. Ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. Feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. 
Every other God is impotent. Yet our God is a God who is sovereign. He is in control. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. And while Israel might lose some battles, God is undefeated. He never loses. And he will always be glorified. With that in mind, let's pray together, then we'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you for your word. God, this this text is somewhat ancient, but it is living. It is relevant to our lives. God, as we come before it today, we come before your word with great humility as your servants desperately needing to hear your voice. God, I pray that you would bless your word this morning. We know there is power in your word. God, I pray by your word and by your spirit, you would work in each of our hearts this morning. God, if there's somebody here that doesn't know you, I pray that they would see the foolishness of defying you. And they would worship you as the one true God coming to you through faith in Christ, the way that you have designated. God, for all of us, change us by means of your word today. May we leave here changed because we met with the God of all creation, Lord of heaven and earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. But look at verse 1. Israel has been defeated. The ark has been taken. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. The Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Now, a couple of things that are interesting about this. Number one, we have no indication that Israel will go after the ark. No plans are drawn up to go and recapture it. It's kind of out of sight and out of mind. There's a picture here that if God is going to bring salvation, God is going to have to do it all by himself. Salvation in scripture is always pictured as a work of God. It's not a synergistic work. God is going to bring about salvation. He's going to glorify himself. He will save his people. But it will not be a synergistic work between God and Israel. It's not like Israel contributes anything. It will be God's work alone by his grace. And so salvation is today. It is not something we earn or accomplish. It is something that God does in our hearts by his grace. So God is going to bring salvation all by himself. The other thing that's interesting here is that the uh, Philistines don't destroy the ark. You would have thought that they, having conquered Israel, would have taken the ark of God and destroyed it as a demonstration of their power. But I think the idea here is that there's some level of reverence for God. We acknowledge God, we've heard of what he's done, and so you'll see here that they just take it into their temple and they set the ark uh, next to or by Dagon. So we reverence God, we have a, uh, a respect for him and his power, but we're going to just set him up alongside all of our other deities that we worship to make sure that we've got all of our bases covered. But they will not worship as God alone. 
And God will be either worshipped as God alone or he won't be worshipped as all, at all as, as we'll see in this passage. But they're just going to set God up alongside all these other gods. And it's kind of synergistic. It's, a, it's we're just going to have all these other gods. So many Christians today, people that's, that call themselves Christians, but, but all they really want to do is just add God to all their other deities and the things that they worship. That there's this healthy respect for God. We acknowledge God. We know that God exists. God bless America. We'll sing all those things. But when it comes to worshiping God and God alone as supreme, no thank you. We'll stop there. We want God's blessing. We want to enjoy the, the, the sun that comes up at day and the rain that falls from the sky and the food that he puts on the table. We'll take all his blessings, but worship him as, as God alone? No thank you. Respectful, but just another, another God. One of the things that you see in this passage very clearly is that God is the one true and only God. And he's the God of Israel. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is even what the Philistines will say of him. The ark of the God of Israel. He's the one and only true God. So they just set him up beside Dagon as just another deity, another idol, treating him very similar to the way that Israel did. Verse 3, it says, when the Ashdodites rose early the next morning, so they've set it up, just got it like, just like they like it. They arrive in the morning, early morning, and behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. Dagon falls down and worships God. Dagon is instructing his followers, this is the one and only true God. It's interesting to me, next week you're going to see these milch cows and they're going to send them with these offerings of the, the, these golden idols of the, the mice and the, the boils. And the cows will walk straight, meaning they are perfectly obedient. They are under the sovereign hand of God, perfectly obedient. And it struck me that the only two people that really are obedient, truly obedient to God in these chapters are cows and idols, isn't that interesting? But I'll tell you what, nature recognizes God. In fact, you'll even remember when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he rides in on the colt, the full of donkey, a colt in which no one has ridden. You ever tried to ride a colt that's nobody's ridden on? You won't last long. And yet this colt is totally and completely submissive to Christ. Why? Because that colt recognized his creator. Nature and idols, the demons, they know who God is. And so Dagon falls over in worship towards God, instructing his followers. In fact, it's a reminder. You remember Jesus, when he was born, the wise men came from the east and they worshiped Christ. What were they doing? They were demonstrating to the world that this is what you do. Jesus is God. He is to be worshipped. So Dagon here is instructing the people, worship God. But what do they do? It says at the end of verse 3, so they took Dagon and set him in his place again. <laughs> 
Listen to me, just in general principle here this morning, if you have to help your God stand up, he's probably not worth worshiping. <laughs> it is amazing to me, you read this story and it is a head scratcher. Because what should they have done? They should have gone home and said, honey, we're changing churches and we're changing gods. It reminded me in the story of Jonah. You remember when Jonah flees from God and he gets in the boat and there's men on the boat with him. In fact, chapter one, I think the story's more about those men than it even is about Jonah. But he gets on the boat with men that probably had no knowledge of God whatsoever. God brings this terrible storm against him. The lots fall to Jonah. They, he tells them, because I fear God. It, it, God is bringing this on me. And, and they end up, they don't really want to do it. They're kind of reluctant, but they finally toss Jonah overboard. The whale swallows him, or the fish swallows him, and then the, the sea calms, and they go home. You know what it says? They worshiped God, and they made vows. God converted those men by the demonstration of his power. Well, here God is demonstrating his power over Dagon as the one true God, and yet they're not going to worship. They're just going to set him back up. We'll give it another shot. We'll give it another try. Look at verse four. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. So uh, he, now he not only beats him, he not only falls down to worship, but he completely exposes Dagon as impotent. He cuts off his head. In that day, if you really want to demonstrate that you dominated and defeated your enemy, you cut off his head. They're going to cut off King Saul's head later and pin him to the wall in Bateshon as a demonstration that we have defeated King Saul. Well, here, Dagon's head, Goliath will cut off, or David will cut off the head of Goliath with his own story as a demonstration he's defeated. Well, right here, God cuts off Dagon's head as a demonstration that he is totally defeated. His head was a demonstration of his wisdom. He has no wisdom. No wisdom to lead his people. Cuts off his hands. Hands were a demonstration of his power. This God is powerless. In fact, it's, it's uh, most believed that, that Dagon, the idol, was demonstrated as kind of the top half being man and the bottom half being fish. There's actually some translations that talk about the fishy part. So the bottom half, he's basically a mermaid. I mean, it's hilarious when you think about it. All that's left is the fishy part. Just the, just the little tail is sitting there. He's completely exposed. His, and it's meant to be comedic. We're meant to laugh at this. This is the foolishness of people who worship idols. In fact, it's kind of like you remember when the, the prophets of Baal... Uh, come up against Elijah and they're offering their sacrifice. They put in their calling out. And you remember what Elijah says? Call a little louder. Maybe he's gone on a trip. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe he's gone to the restroom. Maybe he's relieving himself. We don't know. Maybe just call out a little louder. Elijah is mocking their gods because he knows that Baal is impotent. Here God is exposing their God is completely and totally impotent. Nothing was left but the trunk Look at verse five. You would think again here that they, at this point, surely they would see, boy, it sure seems like our God's not very strong. I mean, what in the world did they even set him back up? It's not like they got gorilla glue back then, you know? 
what do they have left? I mean, you would think that this would have been it. If it wasn't that he fell down in worship the first time, surely now, now they'll say, oh, goodness, we, this is the one true God. But look at what it says. Verse 5, therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Not only do they not worship God, it appears that they continue to worship Dagon, and now they just make the threshold, the place where he fell down, a sacred place. I mean, it's foolishness. In fact, as I read this, this is Romans chapter 1. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That word suppress is hold under the water. God places a knowledge of himself in every one of us and what we choose to do in our sinfulness, we hold it under. Listen to what it says, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that men are without excuse. God has demonstrated his power in creation. Everyone is without excuse. Listen to verse 21. For even though they knew God, do these Philistines, do they now know God? They call him the God of Israel. They're even going to acknowledge that God is the one who's harming them. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And here we see it being played out in the Philistines as they will not acknowledge the one true God Well, look at verse six. Dagon doesn't have any hands, but God's hand is on the move. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdots, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. So their God is impotent, yet God here is powerful. He has demonstrated that he is God. And if they will not worship by precept, we learn this about Israel. If they won't worship by precept, they'll worship by pain. But how many knees are going to bow? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So you can, you, can, you can reject me, but I'm still God. And you're going to have to acknowledge me. And so God brings pain. There's a, a judgment here. Um, when it says that he ravaged them, many believe that this is a uh, ravage them with mice that will eat up their crops. It's kind of speculation, but the next chapter we're going to see the idol the, that they present back to God will be the golden mice. And there is a thought here that, that God uh, ravages their wheat and their grain with mice. In other words, uh, you, want, uh, you don't want to worship God, but you want him to bless your economy. And it don't work that way. And also know that Dagon was a god of fertility, a god of fruitfulness. And God says, well, let's see how fruitful he really is. I'll just take away everything you have. And it says he smote them with tumors. There is a thought as well that while the the ravaging may have been mice, the tumors may have been what might have been the original form of the bubonic plague. 
coming from the diseases that mice carry. We're not certain, but in some way, tumors break out on their skin. And God's hand is heavy upon them. What is their reaction? Verse seven, when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon our God. Again, they know God. They acknowledge God. There's no doubt that God is the one that's doing this, but they still won't turn to him. What is their thought? We'll just send him on down the road. So in verse eight, they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines to them and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. Let's send him over to Gath. Maybe we'll get outside the range of his missiles. You know, uh, like this has got some kind of cell tower. If we can get away from his range, then he won't bother us anymore. Well, how does that work out? And they brought the ark of God of Israel around in verse nine. After they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was, was against the city with very great confusion. And he smote them in his city, both young and old, all of them, because they're all guilty, so that tumors broke out on them. Verse 10, so they sent the ark of God to Ekron. We're gonna send it on further down the road. And the ark of God came into Ekron. And the Ekronites cried out saying, they brought the ark of God of Israel around to to us to kill us and our people. Verse 11, they sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place so not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors and the cry of the city went up. Interesting, God is going to declare himself to be God. There's no doubt that he is God, yet they will not worship him. They are hardened in their idolatry. And guess what they wanna do? Just get out of here. That's their idea. We're not gonna acknowledge you. We don't wanna worship you. What we want is you to just go away. You know what they learn really quickly? That unlike Dagon, God is omnipresent and he's omnipotent. He's all powerful and he's everywhere. You cannot escape him. You can run, but you cannot hide. But they say just get out of here and leave us alone. When I read this, I couldn't help but think of Uh, It's in Mark 5, Matthew 8. Jesus uh, will go over, take the disciples over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the area of the Decapolis, and there they encounter what? They encounter a demon possessment. What's your name? My name is Legion. We are many. And that demon recognizes who Jesus is. And he says, what are you and me to do with you? Who am I to you? We're, We're different. What are you doing here? And the demon asked Jesus uh, to send him into the swine. In fact, the, 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 the demon-possessed man is a picture of fallen man apart from God. He is dangerous, he is self-destructive, he is dead, and he's without hope. All we can do is chain him up against the tombs, and he still gets out. Is that not a picture of man that left to our own devices? We are incredibly dangerous people. We are evil, we are not inherently good. Just read the news. We're not inherently good people, we're messed up. And we will become self-destructive, won't we? And we're spiritually dead. But the man will have an encounter with Jesus, Jesus will cast out the demons, he'll cast them into the swine, the swine run down the hill, which is another picture of fallen man just running to eternal destruction. But the demon-possessed man, after 
his encounter with Jesus is pictured as clothed and seated and in his right mind because now he knows who God is. He knows who he is. He has met the Savior, Jesus Christ. He's been transformed. He's a new creation in Christ Jesus, and he's trying to get in the boat with Jesus. He goes from a menace to society to the model citizen, and you would think that the city would say what? Wow. Hey, Jesus, why don't you come in our city? We got a couple other problems we'd like you to address. We got a couple other messed up folks we'd like you to meet. But what is their attitude? Get out of here. God, we don't mind you fixing this guy, but don't mess with our lives. Don't mess with our economy. Don't mess with our pocketbooks. We'll acknowledge you as God, but we, we would like for you to just go on down the road and let us be. In so many situations, man would rather suffer than be saved. He would rather continue in the destructive nature of his sin rather than repent and acknowledge God for who he is. And so, so it is here with these Philistines. They're hardened. They send God on down the road, and God's hand is heavy upon them. God brings judgment upon them. This should remind us of a story in so many ways is a picture that we see throughout scripture. In fact, it's a good picture of the Exodus as well. But it should remind you of an individual who came and said he was God, demonstrated in every way that he was God. And yet the nation rejected him, handed him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, They put him on a cross and they killed him. And then they placed him in a tomb. We sang about it earlier. And the Roman authorities and the Jewish leadership thought, we won. We're victorious. We just got rid of him. He's dead and gone. And yet on the third day, what happened? He was declared with power to be the son of God through the resurrection from the dead. That he has demonstrated that he is God and he is God's only means of salvation that he has provided. And the news goes out. And yet in so many ways, what is the response of man today? He's declared with power. He has demonstrated his glory through the resurrection and yet man in his sinfulness refuses to repent. One of the things that we see in this story, it was reminded, I was reminded of this over and over again, not only with Israel but also with the Philistines, that salvation is all of God's work. You ever have those individuals in your life, you try to have all these conversations with them and give them all this evidence and you're trying to have this debate with them and you just feel like in every way you're just hitting a brick wall. You feel like, just like you're reading this story, you feel like you're reading the Philistines. I mean, what more evidence do you need? We're reminded of this. As Paul said in Corinthians, that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. And if any of us are gonna be saved, and those of us who have been saved know this to be true, it wasn't that we went out searching for God. God came for us. And he peeled back the blinders of our eyes. It wasn't that we were smarter than everybody else and we figured it out. 
We were dead in our transgressions and sins. There was nothing within ourselves to save ourselves. But at some point or another, God met us where we were at. He, he shone the light of the gospel into our hearts. We saw the depth of our sin. We saw the beauty of our Savior Jesus. And we ran to him. And he drew us. And he saved us. And he gets all the glory. We're going to see it with Israel. They're his people. He's going to save them. But it'll be all his work. And he alone will get the glory. My encouragement to you today, if you do not know Jesus, if you have never bent the knee, listen to me. It's not like you can say, well, I just don't want to deal with him. I'm going to cast him on down the road. I don't want to think about it anymore. You cannot defy God and get away with it. Sooner or later, you have to deal with him and you have to deal with your sin. And there's only one solution and it's Jesus Christ. As we're going to see next week, you don't get to pick and choose how you come to God. Israel's just going to open the ark like they can just flippantly come to God. You know what God's going to say? No, no. You don't enter my presence flippantly. You don't come on your own. You come through blood sacrifice and ultimately through Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. How do we know? He was raised from the dead. It's proof positive that I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is with me, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives. The world might say he's defeated. They might count it foolishness. We know he lives, he lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Father, we thank you for your word this morning that speaks so plainly to us about who you are. You are the one and only true God, the God of all creation, Lord of heaven and earth, the one who spoke everything we see into existence, the one who knew everything about us and yet still loved us and sent his son to die on a cross for our sins. And the God who would demonstrate this kind of love and go through these links to save us deserves more than just the tip of the hat. He deserves more than simple acknowledgement or reference. He deserves and demands everything. All of our lives. God, I pray if there's somebody here that doesn't know you, I pray that they would not get mixed signals today or at any point in this church to believe that maybe they could just add Jesus to the rest of the other deities in their life. But they would know today you demand total worship. You're either Lord of all or you're not Lord at all. And I pray today in a recognition of their sin a recognition of Christ as their savior, they would submit to you today. They'd bend the knee. Whatever other God they've been worshiping, whether that be themselves or something other than you, I pray today they'd bend the knee to Christ as Lord of all and know your salvation, your forgiveness. God, I pray for those of us that do know you. I pray that we would demonstrate that you are Lord of all in all of our life. That the testimony of our lives would be that there's only one and true God, and it's the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who's worked salvation through his son, Jesus. Help us to demonstrate the sovereignty and the lordship of Christ. We pray this in his name, amen.